Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. On this episode, we caught up with our first non-U.S. veteran, Avi Deutsch. Avi was born and raised in Israel to American parents. He served in the Israeli army and became an officer, extending his compulsory service and commanding a tank platoon. He is a veteran of the Second Lebanon War. After an experience at the Bank of Israel and a year abroad in Rwanda working with at-risk kids, Avi worked for several years to become an impact investor, which is what he does today. He tells us about his industry as well as his personal journey to get there. If you look at what has caused dramatic shifts in the human condition over time, what's decreased child mortality, what's decreased hunger, on a mass scale, it is business. It is the economy. It is capitalism. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. We're ready to go. We're good. Are you in a, like a no shit log cabin up there? Yeah, man. Really? Been here since uh, May. Yeah. Why did you decide to do that? Initially, I thought I'd go back and forth between the city and this, but frankly, it's been nicer to be up here. So. Oh yeah. Are you ever coming back? Yeah, I'll come back when uh, things are normal again. But for now, it's kind of nice. Get to experiment with a different, diff- different way of living. Oh, I know that you're no stranger to the outdoors, so you're probably having yeah, a ball. Exactly. You're the first non-American that we've, uh, well, no, you're American, but you're the first person we uh, have had on where the context is not serving the U.S. military. Foreign soldier, yeah. Yeah. Foreign yeah. military. But you're like a dual citizen, right? Yeah. So what's your family background and, and where did you spend most of your time growing up and having ties to both uh, the U.S. and Israel? So I grew up entirely in Israel. My parents moved to Israel in the early 80s. They met there. They moved separately. They met there. And they had a bunch of kids. Got married, had a bunch of kids. So I lived in Israel my entire life until I moved in 2013 for a few months before I went to Rwanda or in 2012. Uh, yeah. So I... I went back and forth as a kid, you know, I'd go visit my grandparents. I probably visited the States, I don't know, maybe three or four times before moving here. Oh, I thought you spent more time here, like as a kid. No, never. No? Uh, we oh, would come shit. for summers. So I have three siblings and we would do a rotation. So one kid would go every year. My grandparents would like have one kid over. And then we came once as a family when I was a kid for my uncle's wedding. But that was it. But so your parents are both American and they just both happened to move to Israel and said, like, we're we're doing it here, building a family. Why they do that? Uh, I'm going to answer that in a second. But just so I know, is this the podcast already or are we just talking? Yeah, it's like a soft open. Yeah. Okay, cool. Just checking. They so <laughs> anything you don't want on the record, you can yeah. just tell us now. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah, don't say my parents both moved to Israel. Separate reasons, but I think there's some parallels. My mom grew up with a, in a pretty pro-Israel house. She lived in Israel as a teenager for a year. And then when she got out of college, she, after her first job, she decided that she didn't really want to be in the rat race here and decided to move back to Israel. My dad had tried a bunch of careers here and actually moved to Israel. He was much older than she was, so he was not, he's nine years older than she is. But he moved to Israel actually right after he got out of the Air Force. The, the U.S. Air Force. So he had spent four years uh, as a mechanic on B-52s. And it was actually while he was in the Army 
that he became more religious, Jewish religious, and decided to move back to Israel. He had lived there for about a year earlier on. So I think they both had this sort of earlier experience, had this memory of an idyllic non-U.S. society where they wanted to live. And they so they met there. So it's like expat romanticism, maybe? Yeah, you know, it's... Uh, it's interesting. I think a lot of Americans who move to Israel wind up building lives that are still very much American. Like it is in any expat situation. I mean, you've lived abroad, you know what it's like. So my parents definitely lived somewhat within that sort of, I don't want to say bubble, but in a community that was very Americanized. A lot of their friends spoke English. My mom actually speaks good Hebrew and has worked in Hebrew. My dad, so-so, never really picked it up. Still hasn't picked, I mean, how how long? My dad lived in Israel for three decades and never really picked it up. Uh, he's since moved back, so he lives in Texas now. But he never, never really picked it up. Is it easy for people to move from the U.S. to Israel and just set up shop or what? Do you have to pick the right city or what? I don't think it's easy. I think, listen, there is a large American community. So in that yeah. respect, you know, it yeah. helps. Uh, your money goes further. That probably helps, but it's it's certainly not easy. Not you know, I think especially not today where Israelis grow up speaking pretty good English. So it used to be that you had a little bit of a competitive advantage for jobs in the English market, right? Or for jobs where you were required to speak English. Today, not so much. I think a lot of people move to Israel. A lot of you you probably know people or have come across people who have moved to Israel. Some people stay. A lot of people wind up spending a couple of years and then coming back here because. Moving countries is hard. Uh, I'm sure plenty of our listeners will know about like compulsory service, right? But maybe not everyone. So can we just try to set a baseline of what actually goes down in Israel with compulsory service? Sure. So according to the law in Israel, when you turn 18, uh, you have to serve in the army. Contrary to popular belief, that doesn't mean that everyone serves in the army. There are large segments of the population that are by definition, almost excluded, and that includes Israeli Arabs. Israeli Arabs do not serve in the Israeli army, although Bedouins and Druze do. A lot of ultra-Orthodox men, the majority, do not serve in the army, and that is for a set of historical circumstances, although that's certainly coming under pressure because if you look at the Israeli demographics today, you've got, I forget the numbers, but roughly 50% of first graders are either ultra-Orthodox Jews or Israeli Arabs. So clearly that's not sustainable in the long run. Yeah. Ultra-Orthodox women certainly don't serve. In fact, even Orthodox women often don't serve. So you have this compulsory service, but the reality is not everyone, you know, if you look on a, on a broad scale, not everyone goes into the army. And then as you know, when you say go into the army, most people who go into the army don't serve in combat positions, right? So I don't know what the ratio is today, but one to 10, one to eight, right? And that ratio holds for folks who go into the Israeli army as well. So not everyone goes. Of those who goes, a lot of people go into different types of support roles. Certainly important, but it's only a pretty small slice that ends up in, in the combat units. Do you have any say over where you end up? You have some say. So before you go in, when you're 16, 17, the army starts calling you in for uh physical exams, and then they do this sort of mental acuity exam, and they give you two scores. And then based on the, a physical score and a mental or psychological score, and then based on those two scores, they offer you a few options. 
and you can rank those options, it doesn't necessarily mean you get them. Is it psychological score or like mental aptitude? Because we do, okay, we do more of like aptitude, which filters where where you go or what jobs are open to you. I said on the last episode that, you know, I put the uh, square block in the square hole, so I got to enlist in the infantry. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's similar. It's a mental aptitude test. That's probably the right term for it. And that's that's what they use to define which unit you go to. A lot of what they're looking at is obviously for more elite units, they want people with higher aptitude. But also in other units, they know that they need a certain ratio of people who can go out to do first sergeant's course, tank commander's course, in my case, or officer's training. And they can't just send people with a low aptitude to the infantry, for example, because they have to be able to select sergeants and then officers out of there. And later on, you can't go to officer school if your aptitude test is below a certain rank. I kind of joke around, but with the post 9-11 generation with us, we have everyone joining every job they wanted to, you know, a lot of people joined out of patriotism and just wanted to do like whatever the toughest thing you can give me is. And that was a cool experience to have everyone who decided to do that. So do they like point at you and say, you're a smart guy, you're going to be an officer, guy or girl, you're going to be an officer? Or you spend a little time and then you go become an NCO and then they promote you and and all this and that because all of our officers come from university or have a degree or go to OCS, ROTC, something like that. But if you're putting everyone into the military at 18, how do you do that? Yeah, so everyone in the Israeli army, everyone goes in pre-college. So with the exception of if you want to become a doctor, for example... The, the army will pay for it, yeah. and then you have to serve as a doctor. But everyone else goes in pre-college, right? So no one comes as an officer. Everyone comes in equal playing field, and you go through whatever the training is for your assigned role, right? Yeah. Once you finish the set of training where you're ready to become you know, a soldier, go out to the units, that is when they take people and send them to become an NCO, right? Become a, a, a sergeant. They've changed that a little bit. When I was in the army, you could go straight from being in training to being a sergeant to officer school without serving a day in the field. And that, I don't have to tell you, you've seen officers who come come to being a commander, you know, without having spent a day in the field and sometimes yields results that are uh, suboptimal. So the army goes back and forth on this. You know, the main reason that they do this is for cost purposes, right? Yeah. In other words, the faster you become an officer, the more time they get out of you. The flip side is you wind up being an officer with zero military experience, which is not always a great thing, right? Yeah. How did it go for you? I have very bad eyesight. And uh, because of that, my medical profile, right, was low. So I couldn't do infantry. I couldn't do elite units. Um, even though I grew up in a society that was very sort of patriotic, pro, you know, hardcore military, go to the most elite units you can go to. Mm. Uh, my options were tank corps, engineers corps, or artillery. And I decided I asked for tank corps and I got it. Uh, and that was sort of, for me, I thought that would be the most, you know, the most hands-on, the most combat that you could get given my medical profile. Yeah. Uh, so I enlisted March 2004, and I went in, you know, like everyone else, a couple of, I, I don't know how many people, but a couple of thousand, I think, joined the 
armored corps, the tank corps, every four months. And I went in as just a soldier. You're not aiming the tank, are you? <laughs> it's funny you say that. Uh, yes, at some point. Uh, but no, not, not originally. So I spent four months doing basic, and that's like basic training like anywhere else. And then um, in the armored corps, you do four months of specialized training. Hmm. And that's where they divide you up into positions, right? So there are four people in a tank, loader, gunner, driver, and commander. I was a loader. So I spent four months specifically training on how to be a loader in a tank, right? Part of that, you also learn how to drive because during a certain situations, the driver and the loader will switch positions. But at that point, I did not, I didn't learn how to shoot or anything else. And that was it. That was the first eight months, right? And after eight months, most people get sent out to combat units, right? So they send you, they put you in a unit. I was selected at that point to go to tank commander school, which was another four months. So they choose... I don't remember what the percentage is, but they choose some percent and they send them directly off to tank commander school. But you just said that uh, good officers have combat experience. How'd you feel about yourself back then? You know, I think it's always mixed. One, at that point in time, most, and I, I don't know percentages, but the vast majority of tank commanders went directly, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there were some opportunities. Sometimes they would pluck people from the units to go to tank commander school, but it was rare. So I think the expectation was that if you were going to go, you were going to go at that point. That said, it's obviously scary, right? You know that you're going to be commanding soldiers who have more experience, and you know you're going to be in situations where you're the commander, and obviously you have no experience dealing with said situations. Yeah. But to compound things, if you think that's bad, right after tank commander school, I was chosen to go to officer school, which was another eight months. So you do four months in a general sort of almost like a military academy type environment where it's all the army's officers together or cadets together and then after that you divide up into the different branches and you do four months of tank specific commander training right so combined that was i guess a year and eight months right where i was just in training you know my actual military experience or combat experience or whatever you want to call it was limited to you know a few weeks sometimes they would send us out to like shadow people in the field or something of that sort yeah. but it was, it was really pretty limited so you're eating up on that two years with all this training but you actually did four years right so did you volunteer to extend or, or how does that work yeah so mandatory is three for men two for women oh, okay so but when when the, when you're offered to go to officer school, you have to sign up for another year. So that's mandatory. Okay. Um, and again, it's just a numbers game, right? They're not getting enough service out of you mm. with a three year. If you're a year and eight months in training, it's just not enough time. So they make you sign on for another year. Yeah. What's the most fun about riding in a tank and rolling around in a tank? I've only been in a tank a few times, but it was awesome. And I love yeah. when the, in the, back the main, or with your the head main gun out. goes What's the, No. Uh, but popping out of like a striker and other yeah. stuff like that, but a, a, for real, like tank only a couple times. Yeah. But it's awesome when the main gun goes off yeah. and it's just friggin' shockwaves. It's yeah. badass. Yeah. It's a pretty phenomenal. It's a pretty phenomenal weapon, and um, you know, you think about boys who love ATVs and shooting guns, right? And tank is just combine those two, and and you've got the world's best all-terrain vehicle with yeah. a 120 millimeter cannon on top. 
it was a lot of fun. Listen, training is training, and it, a lot of the army is just running around like a chicken without a head, right? But when you actually get in the tank and you're rolling through, and especially when you're doing an officer's training, platoon level or company level exercises, right? So there's nine tanks around you and you're just coming off the hills and the guns are shooting and everyone's moving. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and even as a loader, just being inside, you know, as a loader, you load the cannon and then you sort of stand up against the wall and the main gun fires, right? And it just goes right in front of your face. And if you if you have a limb in the, in, in the way of that gun, it's going to take it off and uh, the whole thing shudders and it's just, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it was like the chamber like, recoiling right past your face. Right past your face, a little bar that you put down. So you stand behind the bar, and then the gun actually can't go off unless that bar is down. Okay. And then the whole chamber just goes right in front of your face. And I forget what the tonnage was I used to know, but many people have lost limbs by sticking something out beyond that uh, beyond that bar. Jesus, it's like the thing on the roller coaster. Yeah. When you pull, yeah, the, bar, so. pull the bar down. It's very much so. Inside. Yeah. yeah, I love being a loader. It's a, it's a very dynamic position. You're loading and you're getting ammo and things are moving around and you have your own little camera in the tank that I was on. So you get to see a lot of what's going on. You're closest to the commander, so you get to sort of sense of actually what's going on as opposed to everyone else in the tank is very much stuck in. If you're the gunner, you're in this little tube, right, which is your sight. And if you're in the driver, you're in the turret. You're not even in the turret, right? Yeah. Um, you're totally cut off, and all you can see is really straight. So as as the loader, you actually get a lot of visibility to what's happening in the sort of battlefield. Have you seen the movie Fury? Yeah. Brad Pitt, right? Yeah. That's a great that? movie. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't get a lot of press, but I really like that movie. I think it's yeah hugely underrated. I agree. I agree. And, you know, it, it highlights one of the interesting things about tanks, and that is that tanks were created and built to fight against other tanks, right? That's how, and that's how we trained. When we trained for tanks, we trained for fighting against other tanks. Uh, but Israel hasn't done that since 1973, right? Where we've mainly against the Syrians, uh, Egyptians as well. And most militaries, I mean, we got a little bit of that. The U.S. Army got a little bit of that in Iraq, right? Yeah. But the reality is that tanks today are used a lot more for urban warfare situations, right? And they're not really trained for it. They're not really designed for it. Uh, it highlights a lot of their vulnerabilities. Um, and I think you get a real flavor of that in, in Fury, if my memory serves. Yeah. I, my favorite part is, like you said, tanks battling other tanks. I mean, they're calling out formations. There's like right. two tanks flanking another one. They know that the enemy tank is like superior technology, but they right. have a strategy to defeat it. It's an incredible yeah. movie. Ben mandatory movie reference out of the way early this episode awesome and one i haven't seen i gotta check that out nice. oh yeah, yeah you, you really gotta check it i might watch it again i might watch it tonight <laughs> nice so in the u.s we've been look we've been at war for like two decades and it's yeah. very rotational and people have come to just see it as like a way we do business right it's everyone's always coming and going and it's been this way since you know late 2001 what's that tempo like with the added effect of like you're you're at home right you don't travel halfway across the world to serve right like you you train and serve and it's all in the same time zone yeah the israeli army has struggled with this a little and and bear in mind that most of my information is a little dated at this point right but 
the majority of the troops in the Israeli army are deployed in the territories. So they're de deployed in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip doing really more police-style work than military work. Hmm. And this was especially detrimental to the Armored Corps because when I did finally make it to the field, I wasn't serving on tank. I was an officer just out of training. I'd spent four months as an officer training new recruits. I arrived in the field and we were serving in the territories protecting the civilians, the Israeli civilians who lived in the, in the territories. Okay. So we were doing foot patrols. We were riding around in Humvees. We were standing in pillboxes. There were no tanks anywhere, right? Not that you would want tanks in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. And theoretically, units are supposed to cycle. So, you know, they do a couple of tours of duty. That's how sort of we would refer to them, even though they're just in the territories are obviously very nearby, right? But you would do four months, six months, eight months, and then the army would yank you out and you would go do some training for what you're supposed to do in case of war, right? Yeah. But the reality is that, as you know, material resources are always short in the army. So a lot of units often got skipped over and didn't wind up doing the training they were supposed to do. So it was, it was supposed to be this tempo of do eight months of ongoing military service in the, in the field, right? And then pull back, do four months of training to maintain your readiness for, for an actual war. But that balance was, was pretty thrown off. Are those trips still stressful to the troops? Like the, the, I guess the constant threat of something happening or what's the intensity like? Um, it's pretty intense. We were doing, like I said, usually some combination of foot patrols, Humvees, and pillboxes. You know, usually you're doing, I don't know, eight, on, eight, eight hours on, eight hours off, right? It's sort of the standard. When you're walking around on, on foot or in a Humvee, um, the threat is real, both from shootings, which happen, a lot of attacks on civilians on roads. And that was sort of our main focus was guarding roads and guarding settlements. It's pretty exhausting. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, I'll, I'll speak for myself, there's a constant moral tension that comes from dealing with the civilian population, yeah. right? Yeah. You've got soldiers who, in the Israeli army, you have everybody, right? You have a cross-section of society. And that means people from all types of backgrounds and people who have different values than you have, right? And that, that really comes out strong when you're dealing with civilian populations. I imagine you saw that plenty. Yeah. And managing that tension between soldiers and civilians as an officer, especially as a green officer, on an ongoing basis was tough. Yeah. Well, for us, we were fighting people who totally didn't look like most of us, and we were trying to protect people who totally didn't look like most of us. But I've always wondered what it was like to be that that close to the people who you're, you know, going through this experience with, right? Yeah, I mean, it still feels different. Uh, you know, Palestinians still feel different than Israeli or at least Israeli Jews speak a different language, they're ethnically somewhat different. I think the bigger challenge that I had, I think other people have, is that we're not necessarily sure we should be where we are, right? So you're protecting settlements, which you may or may not think should be there. The settlers often don't think the army is doing enough to protect them. Uh, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, but they're often pissed at you because you're not doing enough to protect them, right? 
And then you're very actively interfering in the daily lives of the Palestinians, sometimes out of necessity, right? But it's still a pretty tense place to be, right? Yeah. You know, when you have to stop people and look at their groceries because it's just part of your job, right? And uh, yeah, it's pretty unpleasant. I guess we could spend like forever talking about this and I'm the last person to be uh, talking about, you know, what we're getting into now. But to keep it back on the topic of the episode, yeah. What you what did you enjoy most about your service and, and the fact that you chose to do a little extra time and that you got some career advancement because they obviously knew that you were a bright guy. What do you look back on fondly still? Um, you know, I'll say this because this doesn't answer your question directly, but I'll get to it. But I can't talk about my military service without talking about it, right? Um, and that is my military service took a very sharp turn in 2006 when the Second Lebanon War broke out, mm. right? So that was a pretty sharp transition from protecting settlements in the territories, right, to a full-blown war in Lebanon. I think that remains one of the experiences that I'm most proud of in my life, uh, being able to serve in that type of environment in a time when you know, wars are terrible, obviously, and, and I've lost friends, I'm sure you have, uh, but at least in Lebanon in 2006, for a period, it was black and white. And that's a luxury that you don't get often in the army. You know, the attacks on Israel were unprovoked. Mm. The response was, at least in the early stages, internationally pretty accepted, uh, which Israel doesn't get to say very often. And there were a couple of weeks there where we knew we were on the right side. And that, to be able to be there and serve with my men, was a pretty phenomenal experience. Obviously, it, you know, the, the, the ramifications of that are great, including friends that I've lost and many other people who, who died. But I'm proud to, I was proud to be a part of that. Uh, you know, I think for me as a 21, 22-year-old, being able to command a platoon of tanks at that age, it was really pretty phenomenal. It's not the type of responsibility that I would see again for many years, right? Yeah. And I think you walk away from that with a sense that you can overcome challenges. I don't want to say no matter what the world throws at you, but there's a lot you can, you can, there's a lot you can overcome. Sometimes I think about the responsibilities I had that early in life. And, you know, I feel fortunate that generationally lined up that I was able to serve in a time when my country needed me and all that. Yeah. But I just think about now, like, yeah, man, when I was, you know, 21, 22 years old, I'm like, holy crap. I have, uh, <laughs> a lot of really real responsibilities right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, there's very few allegories outside of the military. Yeah. For sure. And it's such a young age, right? I mean, you hear, I don't, I don't like drawing contrasts. I think every, these situations are very different. But you hear about people talking about their team at work, right? And the responsibility that comes with that. And it is a great responsibility. But nine times out of 10, people don't die because of decisions you make. Right. And uh, that is a very different type of responsibility. Yeah. Looking back at some, sometimes it almost just seems surreal, right? Like, was I actually there? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was. But at the time, you just felt like you were you were in it, you know? 
Yeah. I, I think and there's a reason why soldiers are young, right? I, I don't know that we could be those people today. I take that back. I think if we had to, we could. But I think it, it sort of, at the time, you don't think about it as much, right? You just sort of, this is your work, and this is what you got to do, and mm-hmm. you treat it like a job, and you treat it as your responsibility. And and the military, not always, but I think, by and large, it recognizes who should be where. It doesn't always work well, but people who are willing to assume responsibility usually wind up in places where they have it. So how long do people usually stay in, or I'm kind of taking a roundabout way of asking you when you determined it was time to go. So would the status quo be to do, you know, the mandatory service, maybe plus a year or two, there's probably a big group of people that do that. And then there's a group of people that would stay in an entire career. And then, you know, the the group of people that gets out halfway through like yours truly. Yeah. The army, uh, the army puts a lot of pressure on you to stay. And I imagine this is no different, right? They've invested a lot of money in you. If they see some potential, they want you to stay. Um, I remember they sent me to, uh, there was a military academy that I could have gone to to you know, get my bachelor's degree. And then part of that, they do sort of uh, company commander training and stuff of that sort. And they sent me to the night where they were sort of introducing the program. It's almost like a reception, right? It's almost like a Wemba event. And uh, I told them I didn't want to go because I knew I wasn't staying. And the army being the army, they're like, you have to go. I was like, all right. So I went. Right. And then it was, uh, they made me take the equivalent of the ASATs. There was like a short ASAT test. I was like, I'm not going. They're like, yep, still got to take the test. So I took the test. And then they parade you into this room, right, with like, I forget who it was. It was maybe the division commander and, you know, a bunch of other senior officers. And they make you stand in front of that room and tell them you're not staying, right? It's everything they can do to keep you. But I, I don't think I ever really considered a career or a long-term career in the Army. I think had circumstances been different, I might have stayed a few more years, maybe become a company commander, a few more senior positions. After the war, for physical reasons, I couldn't be in tanks. And I knew that I didn't want to stay if I couldn't be in a tank. And frankly, my relationship with the Army really took a pretty heavy blow during that war. Me and a lot of my colleagues, there was a lot of stuff that came out afterwards that shook our confidence in the senior leadership. And that was when I decided that I wasn't sticking around. Hmm. Is there a standard path that people choose, do you think, after compulsory service? Would the next logical thing just be to go to undergrad? Yeah, I think the next logical thing, uh, most people travel, probably different places you've been around the world, you've met those obnoxious Israeli 22-year-old travelers who just got out of the army. So a lot of people do that. Okay. Um, and then certainly, again, a lot of people go to the army, right? So I'm not going to say there's one path, but I think most people who are going to go to school will do it within a year or two after getting out of the army. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll go to undergrad. Does it, do they pay for it since you, since you served or uh, something like the GI Bill over here? Yeah, there's something similar. Um, most, if you go to a public university in Israel, the cost is much more affordable than it is here, and the army will cover some of that. Yeah. If you wind up going to a private college, which a lot of people do, it's sort of the opposite of here in the U.S. People go to private colleges because they can do it part-time, and they can work at the same time. So if you have less means, you often end up in a private college. Uh, they're also more expensive. So, 
you know, it's partially covered, but it's not fully subsidized. Uh, I think that's changed in the last couple of years. I think the army now puts up more money for former, for, for soldiers who get out, in part because less soldiers are going in and they've, they're trying to incentivize people. Yeah. What interested you other than tanks? <laughs> I mean, when you're, would you, you know, show up? Cause I went through this too, right? I went to university like in my thirties. Yeah. Um, how do you determine what interests you? I mean, I guess it's, it's like, I don't know, maybe it's like a kid doesn't really know what they want to do either, but did you have a chance while you're in the army to kind of formulate an idea of what you wanted to spend time learning about? Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't have a great sense and the army does absolutely nothing to prepare you. In fact, if you're, if you're not an officer, you get a little bit more prep because there's more sort of a path that soldiers go through on their way out. As an officer, it's just one day you're in and the next day you're out. And, uh, we had zero preparation. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I took a year and I worked to save up money. I lived at home and then I took a year and I traveled for nine months and then it was in the middle of that trip that I signed up for university. And when you sign up for university in Israel, more like Europe, you actually have to choose your major. You sign up for a specific major. You don't sign up for a liberal arts degree. I didn't know what I wanted to study. I was vaguely interested in economics. So that sort of seemed to make sense. Although um, I've never been great with numbers. So that was a little scary at the same time. And I'd heard of this program and I, I can't even remember how, but the Hebrew University, which is in Jerusalem where I grew up, had a program that was philosophy, political science, and economics, PPE. It was modeled after an Oxford program. And I thought that sounded pretty great. I used to sort of get a little bit of everything. It was pretty prestigious. I knew I'd have to fight to get in, but it seemed like it would keep my options open and still get me a pretty good education. And so did you take to it? Because you eventually chose a career in finance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I signed up. I took the, I was working for a year. I was studying to take the equivalent of the SATs, got my result, and then got on a plane. And uh, while I was traveling, I signed up for university from someone's computer, I think, in maybe Australia. And uh, yeah, I, I, turns out that PPE was a, a really great choice for me. Throughout my university, I toyed with continuing on a path in academia, both in philosophy and in economics. I think I was fortunate in that I figured out that philosophy probably wasn't for me because I didn't want to just do academia. I feel pretty fortunate that I made that choice. Economics was, I was a lot closer. I really thought maybe I should go ahead and do get my PhD in economics. But I wound up in my last year in university, uh, I decided that I had to stop. I was always working in these sort of side jobs, which were paid good money, right? I was a waiter for a time. I was a tour guide and they paid great money, but I wasn't really getting any work experience that was ever going to help me get a the type of job that I wanted. In my last year at school, I went and they don't call it an internship, but that's probably how you would look at it here at the Bank of Israel doing macroeconomics and monetary policy. And that was a phenomenal experience for me. One, because as a, maybe I was 25 at the time, 26, I got to sit in on the meetings where they actually make the decisions on national interest rates, right? And get, you hear Stanley Fisher opine about the economy, and that's a pretty phenomenal experience as a, uh, as a kid. But the reason it was really great for me was because it very quickly elucidated that I did not, elucidated to me that I did not want to have a career in academia or even in 
economics in the way it's practiced in a place like a central bank, where it's very academic, very removed from social change or people's lives. Uh, not that it's not important, but it was way too academic for me. Like those long macro classes that seem to last four hours and you look at your watch and 10 minutes went by. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still love macro. I've always loved macro, but the application of it in an environment like a central bank, right, is, all right, let's spend three years studying this topic and then put out a paper on it, right? Yeah. And that's just way too distanced from change in the world. Yeah. I took a great class on central banking, probably deviating, this might not even make the cut, but I took a great class on central banking at Columbia taught by Perry Merling, but it was like, in one semester, you could go from knowing nothing to, yeah. you know, running a central bank of your own country yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, but it was very interesting. Probably wouldn't want to do it as my life's work, um, but incredibly interesting. Yeah, I think I still think central banks are super interesting because they sit on that scene between economics and politics, right? Yeah, they are. They and and you see this dance that central bank governors are always doing, and the independence of central banks, which we take for granted today in the Western world, was not a case in the 70s and 80s, and the results were so dire. And today we sort of forget that. Anyway, I'll stop talking about central banks, but as you can tell, (laughs) uh, I still think it's super interesting, but it's not where I want to, it's not where I see my career. Yeah, I forget what book I read this in or podcast, classroom I heard it in, but someone said running a central bank is like driving a school bus full of cement with a faulty accelerator and bad brakes. And you just had to not crash it. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds about right. The allegory that I heard a lot was a, was a tanker ship, right? But yeah, same idea. It's just very cumbersome, very hard to steer. Yeah. And, uh, but, but as a, you know, as someone who was still in college, uh, that experience was, I think, pretty phenomenal as a way of one, learning so much, but also experimenting with a way of life or with a career anyway, right? And figuring out early that that option is not for you. I wish I had more of those opportunities in life where you could just be like, oh, nope, not that. Thank you. We're just taking one break in the action for this episode. And first, Ben and I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Among many things, we're grateful for our listeners and your willingness to come on this adventure with us. We're also grateful for all the nonprofits we've discussed on the show so far. The Coast to Coast Foundation, founded in honor of my friend Ryan Savard by some of our friends and teammates helping special operators seek treatment where traditional means end. Small Steps in Speech, founded in honor of my friend Mark Small, helping children overcome speech and language issues. Service to School, who Andrea Goldstein and yours truly both work with, helping veterans gain access to the best academic institutions after service. Elite Me, founded by Navy SEAL John Allen, connecting the military's most talented veterans to potential employers who understand their value. Wrestle Like a Girl, founded by Sally Roberts, empowering young women to be leaders in life through sport. Merging Vets and Players, co-founded by Nate Boyer, empowering combat veterans and former professional athletes by connecting them after the uniform comes off. New Politics, who Katie Neff and Jim Matheson both work with, recruiting, developing, and electing servant leaders who put community and country over self. Ironbound Boxing, started by Mike Stedman, serving underprivileged kids in the city of Newark and building champions inside and outside of the ring. Headstrong, 
which we discussed with Tara Hyder offering free mental health treatment to post 9-11 veterans. If we missed anyone, I apologize. It's incredible to see how many organizations we've been introduced to in such a short time. If you want to help us out directly with the show, head over to thankyounowwhat.com to find out how. If you're feeling generous with your time, please go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or however you're listening. Have a safe and happy Thanksgiving, everyone, and let's get back to the episode. All right, so when did you make the choice to go to Rwanda? And talk about your time there, because I know that we talked about it before. Yeah, so I made it towards the end of, I was coming up on the end of my degree. I was still working at the bank, and I had no idea what I wanted to do next. I had thought that I had this path in mind. You know, I was Googling PhDs in economics all night, and it became clear to me that that was not the path I wanted to take. And frankly, I didn't know what was. So I made the decision that I was going to take some time off and find a better excuse to travel, which is to say volunteer. I had done a lot of work with at-risk youth on a voluntary basis in Jerusalem. It was always something I was very passionate about. And it was for the last two years that I was in school, so two out of three, I'd been volunteering at this daycare center, and it was kids, at-risk, homeless youth, ages 18 to 23. For some reason, they were still considered youth. It was just, it was, it fulfilled me in a way that nothing else professionally that I was doing was fulfilling me. And I, I knew it was never something I wanted to do as a career path. I'm not a social worker. It's not what I want to be. But I thought that this was a good opportunity to spend more time doing that before I sort of committed to a career path. So I started looking for programs in all, all over Sub-Saharan Africa. I didn't have a particular interest in Rwanda at the time. I was looking for something that would basically just pay for my expenses because I couldn't afford to do it otherwise. And it was actually my mother who found the program in Rwanda, but it was kind of perfect because it was with at-risk youth, which is exactly what I wanted to do. I mean, it was a youth village that was actually modeled after the Israeli youth villages. So Israeli youth villages were formed for the orphans from the Holocaust. And an American philanthropist, a woman named Anne Heyman, she died a few years ago. She said, can we use this idea for the orphan problem in sub-Saharan Africa, which especially in Rwanda, 10 years after the genocide, was very acute. So it was a model that I was somewhat familiar with. There was like sort of an Israel connection. And the Joint Distribution Committee, which is a Jewish humanitarian organization, was willing to pay for me to go and spend a year there. So it was really just a great fit. I mean, that sounds like the other end of the spectrum to go from learning that with the central bank job, you have an action and the lead time to seeing a reaction or an outcome is measured in multiple years to then saying, hey, I'm going to piece out of that and go to work on the ground with individuals. Was that kind of your reaction to your previous work experience? You know, career paths only make sense in retrospect. So now looking back on it, I can say, yeah, I was looking for something the exact opposite. I think at the time I was just lost. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew that I was doing this hands-on work and it wasn't going to be my career path, but I was enjoying it. And this just seemed like a way of taking a year off and punting that decision, right? I'll figure it out later. I think it's not a coincidence that it was very hands-on. I do think I was looking for something that was more engaging, but I always thought of it as a break. I, I could see myself doing humanitarian work or international development, but I, I didn't think that I was going to be 
be able to engage with people in that way forever. And this seemed like a great opportunity to do it. And in that same retrospect, now looking back on it, was it a break or did you, was it more than, than a break and in, in working with those individuals? Did any of that experience lead into your next steps in your career path? Oh, 100%. Uh, 100% my experiences in Rwanda shaped where I am today in both very sort of 30,000 feet, right? And what's of interest to me and what do I care about, but also in very practical ways, people I met and experiences I had. I'll, I'll give you one example. I was working at a very traditional youth village. So it was a nonprofit. You know, we got our money from donors and we served kids. But one of the organizations that I came to know in Rwanda, and this is anecdotally, I'd, I've never worked with them in any way, but I, I remember that experience of, wow, this is cool. It was an organization that was working with farmers to try and help them improve their yields, right? Because you look at a place like Rwanda, 80% of people live off subsistence agriculture on these very small plots. And despite what we might think, they don't get a lot of opportunities to experiment, right? Cycles in agriculture are very long and the stakes are very high. So they're often not using the best methods just because they don't have a chance to experiment. They don't have, the, they don't have that safety net right, in case things go wrong. So this organization was, it was still taking donor money, it was still a nonprofit, but it was saying, how do we really drive economic growth in this country from the ground up? And that doesn't mean telling kids they're gonna work in high tech, because the reality is there are no high tech jobs in Rwanda. It's really about helping farmers make more of their fields by giving them access to better seed, better tools, better techniques. So I remember that moment of just thinking about economic growth and international development from a market perspective, right? From a, how do we make markets more efficient? How do we help this country excel at an industry that is already, that already exists in this country? That was very eye-opening to me. And, and that definitely ties very closely into what I do today in the impact investing world. Before we get into impact investing, what do you think about the focus that many people have that they have to be very like career track focused, can't deviate? one way or another. Anytime I'm not doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing, I'm wasting time, right? Versus like you obviously had a great experience in not doing that. Yeah. Listen, I think it's easy for me to say in retrospect, right? Take a year off, go to Rwanda, spend four years in the army, travel for a year, right? I think all those experiences are phenomenal. I wouldn't trade them for anything. And I think they're certainly part of who I am now. And, and the career path that I've chosen. But I don't want to just paint the, the, the rosy side here. There is a cost to those decisions, right? Mm. And it, that cost is especially high, I think, here in the U.S., where we're not used to that, right? In Israel, no one batted an eye at me traveling after a year, traveling for a year after the army, right? Because everyone does that. So no one looks at your resume and says, huh, what's that missing year? But I think here... And when I moved to the U.S. full-time in, in 2014, you definitely pay a price for it. I'm not saying every year you're going to pay a price for But when you have a resume that doesn't match people's standard set of expectations, right, I do think there's a cost. And I think it's probably a middle ground that makes sense here. I think if you live your whole life and don't have those experiences, that's a shame, right? But I think you have to be wise about it because especially in the U.S., we're so used to a very specific path. But it helped you get from 
central bank to a community in great need. I have the economic skills in one hand. I have my calling in this hand. First, can you tell us what impact investing is since we are listeners? Yeah, I I mean, very broadly, I think it's the idea that we can use capital markets and we can use business as a tool for good in the world. There's a more academic definition, but I think the idea is pretty intuitive, right? And that is how you invest your money and what types of businesses we decide to fund have an impact on the world, whether we're aware of it or not, right? Mm -hmm. And it's an idea of trying to invest in companies and businesses that have a positive social and environmental impact. Uh, you know, I think impact investing is, uh, I, today I like to think about what I do as values-aligned investing. I think I probably spend more of my day doing investing than I do values or impact, right? Um, and that's the reflection of the specific career path that I chose within this impact investing world. But I think for me, it's been a phenomenal choice because it allows me to continue to learn and feel that I am making a step towards tackling large social environmental challenges. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it allows me to feed myself. And I really do believe that if you can move the financial markets, if you can move the economy, you can impact the world in a way that you just can't do from anywhere else. And I'm not I'm not discounting any other type of social impact. I think there's an important place for philanthropy and other types of social change. But if you look at what has caused dramatic shifts in the human condition over time, you know, what's brought, what's decreased child mortality, what's decreased hunger, right? And all these things on a mass scale, it is business. It is the economy. It is capitalism. Well, that might not always be a popular statement. So I think we have to find a way to make that a lot better than it is. But ultimately, capitalism has a very important role to play in solving these challenges. And it's nice to feel that I can have a small piece of that solution, be a small part of that solution. What do you feel about, and you know, answer however much of this you want, but uh, what do you feel about the criticism that companies get where I buy one of their product in America, they give away one of their product somewhere else in the world? Yeah. Is that taking away from a small business owner in that other part of the world, or is that a good thing? By and large, I don't like the give one, buy one, give one model, in part because of the question you raised about, is that actually contributing to that country, right? Does that country really need more foreign shoes or glasses or whatever it is? My problem is actually different with those companies. Funny you said shoes or glasses. (laughs) My, my, My problem is actually different with those companies, and that is that Inherently, those companies put a certain amount of tension between how they affect social change in the world and how they make money, Mm. right? And that is, when they choose to give away a pair of shoes, that's not good for their balance sheet, right? That is money that they are giving away. Now, you could say they make it up in marketing, right? Because people love it, so they buy shoes because of it. But ultimately, that tension still exists. I'm much more interested in companies whose inherent product is doing good in the world, right? I'm much more interested in a shoe factory in sub-Saharan Africa or in glasses that are a lot cheaper and that means people can wear them, right? And where more business means more impact as opposed to this tension. Also, there's an employment opportunity, whatever destination there is for this product where someone's not just receiving something for free, but you actually want to promote an active economy in that place, which means 
production, employment, wage earning, that kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, countries where we're giving away goods could probably benefit from making those goods, right? I think at the end of the day, we know today in international development circles, at least, that giving away anything is probably not the way to go. You're better off selling people malaria nets, even if it's a close at a price that's close to zero, because they're more likely to use them if they paid for them. Just like you charge people to sign up for your webinars because you know they're going to more likely to attend them yeah. if they've paid something to be on them. So I think that's pretty well established. Um, I'm always a little hesitant of companies who are buy one, give one away. I'd much rather see them open a plant in that country than donate shoes there. Hmm. Okay. We'll, we'll figure out how much of that exchange yeah. to keep since all three of us went to Wharton. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Back to the show. Can you describe the ecosystem within impact investing? And what I mean is you have someone who wants to invest in something. You have someone who's kind of not brokering, brokering an exchange, but looking after that capital to make sure that it's invested responsibly and then the the you know recipients of the capital and, and how you actually find them and interact with them. What does that yeah. whole system look like to you? Impact investing is a huge field. So when you say impact investing, that means, and I think maybe a more appropriate term would be values-aligned investing if you really want to sort of take in the whole spectrum. Mm. Anything from a foundation that's making a loan to a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa with zero interest, right? That could be impact investing to a huge U.S. pension fund that wants to invest in companies in the public markets that have high environmental, social, and governance ratings without sacrificing any financial returns, right? So you've got that sort of whole spectrum and then everything in between. You know, I think you can look at it as there are a couple of different players that exist across that spectrum, right, in any transaction. And, and I think you laid them out well, and that is you've got asset owners. So you've got who actually has the capital. That could be anyone with a 401k, could be a large foundation, could be a university endowment, right? And then you've got usually an asset manager, which are the people who manage the funds. So that could be someone who manages a mutual fund, or that could be a private equity fund that is actually going to invest the money in companies on the ground. Um, often you have someone connecting between the asset owners and the fund managers and those are the advisors. So financial advisors, the folks who shepherd large endowments, et cetera, they can be small firms, they can be RIAs, they can be some of these behemoths that, that shepherd a lot of assets. And then after the fund manager, you've got the companies. And again, those could be large U.S. publicly traded companies that are look, you know, betting on ESG performance, or that could be a small shoe factory in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. So that could be anyone on the way. You said a couple words that I wanted to zero in on just for a second, but you said some people look at investing without sacrificing returns. So if I just took my portfolio theory 101 class, I say that if you if you restrict the set of possible investments, then you inherently limit your optimal return. How do you talk to people when they first start to realize this? It's a common thing you'll hear in the in the impact investing world. And that's that's a more sophisticated version of the argument that you must have gone to Wharton. Usually it's just, you know, if you're going to do good with your money, you probably can't make the same style returns, right? The same type returns. 
there's a lot of data that's coming out and has been coming over, over the last couple of years that shows that that is indeed not the case, that you can actually make the same level of returns, market rate returns, whatever that is, by the way, and we can talk about that, but mm. uh, you can make market rate returns while having a positive social environmental impact. Reality is most of us don't invest in the market. We choose companies, right? Um, especially in the private markets where you choose fund managers, but even in the public markets, most of us don't buy the market. We buy specific companies. And I like to think of ESG, environmental, social, and governance standards, which is most of what's used in the public markets, although I'm not sure that's strict enough. And I can talk about that for a bit, but as a great screening mechanism for companies, right? Because companies that have strong governance are going to avoid certain types of scandals. Companies that have a good environmental policy are going to avoid both regulatory risk and are going to be better prepared for an energy transition that is likely happening at some point. What's been interesting through COVID is to watch a lot of ESG funds outperform their traditional peers. I'm a little careful with that because ESG funds tend to be very tech heavy because they want companies who have a small environmental footprint, right? Mm -hmm. Which I don't love. I don't think that's a smart way to invest. But certainly, if you look at ESG funds throughout the last cycle, they have outperformed their peers. And that's because, well, they didn't have any oil in their portfolio. And I don't have to tell you how that affected performance. So when you talk about people understanding ESG standards or, or how they're getting it right, getting it wrong, what do you mean by that? E ESG is a little bit tricky because there are not good standards in the U.S. for how we measure ESG and how companies report on it, and most importantly, how they're audited on it or not audited on it. For a long time, if you looked in some indices, you would see ESG indices, you would see big oil companies top of that list. In part, that's because ESG has a lot to do with how companies operate, so how they do what they do, but less with what they're actually doing. So if you're an oil company, but you have great gender diversity, you know, good corporate governance, and great policies about recycling paper around the office, you might outperform on an ESG scale, right? Does that mean that an ESG investor is looking to invest in a big oil company? Maybe not. The flip side is my car still runs on oil, as does every airplane in the world, right? Well, maybe not anymore, but we still need oil companies. And if we're going to invest in oil companies, I would argue, let's invest in oil companies that are actually working on transition to clean energy as opposed to oil companies who are not. So the field is messy, I think, is sort of the bottom line. There's a lot of things changing. I think you need to really understand what people mean when they say this company has an ESG score. But I also think asking the question, what are these companies doing? Is this a company that's actually doing something that is enhancing long-term societal value? And you know, not all companies, everything they do is great, but I think looking beyond just how they do what they do and looking at what are they actually making in the world is really important. I'm not sure that I want Facebook top on the list on an ESG fund because I'm not sure their impact on the world is positive, even if they have a great maternity leave policy. You're not saying that people could hack an ESG score, are you? Uh, I think you can certainly hack ESG scores. I think they're getting better. Listen, it's an evolving industry. I think they're certainly getting better. I think there are more companies now out there that are using different types of information to score companies. And Europe's been doing this for a long time. The U.S. is playing catch up here. So I do think it's getting better. But I think there are a lot of nuances here. And 
you sort of got to look beyond just the score. If you're working in impact investing, if you are starting a firm, can you just establish what your firm's values are if you don't want to follow some kind of industry standard? You just want to communicate it directly to your investors? Sure. Listen, if you have investors who are willing to give you money, you can do what you want. The reality is most of us have to fight to get money from investors. So whatever it is that you're selling better be something they're interested in. You can say, I want to support, you know, I want to start a fund that's going to invest in big oil companies that have poor ESG scores because I'm going to be an activist investor and I'm going to clean them up. If you can raise the money to do it, great. I think the reality is most of us at the end of the day have to appeal to investors in whatever values and whatever financial returns we're targeting. I work in impact investing in an environment that is very much market rate. In other words, we're never looking, rarely looking for an investment that is below market rate returns. And my values have to be very closely aligned to my clients' values. I'd say even more so, if there's any tension, my clients' values come before my values because I have a fiduciary responsibility to their money. You know, I think if you work, if you're an independently wealthy individual, sure, your values can be what you want. But most of us in the financial industry are subject to fiduciary responsibilities. Hmm. And both legally and morally, that obligates us to put our clients' values and our clients' financial needs first. Can you talk about what market rate means for our non-financial savvy listeners? Yeah, sure. Because you made a quip about it a little earlier, too. Yeah, well, because I think the idea of market rate is a little bit ridiculous, right? But market rate refers to the idea of investment returns that you would make if you were not trying to factor in any sort of environmental, social, or governance screening. I think in the real world, the idea of market rate is a little bit of a fiction, right? because most mutual funds underperform the markets. We know this, right? So is market rate the S&P 500? Or is market rate where your money would alternatively be, which is oftentimes a mutual fund which will underperform the market, right? Um, And that idea becomes even more abstract when you look at the private markets, where most hardcore impact investing, if you're talking about making loans to small farmers in sub-Saharan Africa, That takes place in the private markets. The idea of of comparing risk return profiles in the private markets is a little bit of fiction. Is making loans to farmers in sub-Saharan Africa more or less dangerous than investing in a fund that invests in, uh, I don't know, commercial real estate here in the U.S. in the private markets? Well, let's take take a better comparison. Is investing in small farmers in sub-Saharan Africa more or less dangerous than investing in subprime auto loans in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. Well, microfinance has a pretty phenomenal track record. So can you actually compare it? You know, to the extent that you can do comparisons, there's only been one comprehensive one. It was done by Cambridge Associates a couple of years ago. It came out and said that there was no underperformance for impact funds. It's one study, so take it with a lot of salt. But I think the idea that we can compare returns in a very linear fashion is a little bit phony. All right, so we've talked a bunch about your industry, but I want to talk about you a little more. So you come back from Rwanda seven or so years ago. How do you get to where you are today? What steps have you taken to develop your career within this field? Yeah. So I had this idea before I went to Rwanda as part of not knowing what I wanted to do. I'd made the decision I was going, but the start time was uh, about six months off. I had a girlfriend at the time who wanted to move to New York. So we moved to New York together for those, at that point, it was four or five months. And I decided I would take the GMAT. I had this idea that I might go to business school at some point. 
So I'd done that before I left and decided not to sign up for business school, not even to apply for business school from Rwanda, because a lot of the folks I'd spoken to recommended that I wait until I have a better sense of what it was I wanted to do, which I obviously didn't. Um, I came back from Rwanda. I got interested in this idea of impact investing. It was actually a warden professor who first mentioned that term to me, and I thought that was really pretty cool. And I decided that I was going to live in New York and do impact investing. It turned out that uh, neither of those two things was easy. Uh, one, living in New York is pretty expensive. And two, if you don't have a background in finance, doing impact investing is pretty damn hard. And I spent a long time trying to figure out how I was going to break into this industry. It didn't help that I didn't know anyone in New York except for family members when I moved here. So I didn't have any sort of network. I was just sort of trying to figure out how I was going to break in. I spoke to a woman based out in San Francisco who's still a close friend. And she mentioned a conference to me uh, that was taking place in New York. And I looked at the, uh, it was an impact investing conference. I looked at the website and the cheapest ticket was $1,400, which I obviously could not afford. So I wrote them and I said, hey, can I volunteer at the conference? And uh, they said, sure. So... It was great. I got to, I worked the check-in desk for a few hours on the first day, um, and that was pretty much it. And I got to walk around this conference for free. I met a woman. She told me, we talked about something after a panel, and she said, oh, come into the office and uh, we should chat. And this was after I had done, I don't know, maybe 50 informational interviews, which is where you have to sit in front of someone and pretend like you don't want a job when really all you just want is a job. So I was pretty burnt out from these interviews at that point, but I kept doing them when people were kind enough to make introductions for me. After the conference, I emailed this woman. I think I probably emailed her five or six times until she finally responded. But ultimately, she came in and she said, how about an unpaid internship? And I had, when I first moved to New York, I remember saying to myself, I'll never take an unpaid internship. That's not a thing in Israel. And I can't afford it anyway, because I got to pay my rent. At that point, I was moonlighting as a bookkeeper and I was doing some translation work. And I figured that was my best shot. So I took the unpaid internship, and within a few weeks, that turned into a paying job. And uh, I stayed there for about a year. And that was in a field-building role in the impact investing industry. So I wasn't investing any money, but I learned a ton about what impact investing was because I didn't really know going in. And I met a lot of people in the industry, and it was a pretty great way to get a toehold. All right, then what? I'm out of, I ran out of the end of my notes. I'm just watching the movie now. Oh, okay. <laughs> so after that, I, um, I met a woman named uh, Vanessa who was looking to start a nonprofit organization that would work with Jewish investors and help them think about what it means to align their investments with their values. And she had gotten a grant to start this organization and her and I co-launched what became Lavan, L-A-V-A-N. And I ran that for about three years. It was a really interesting experience. It was working with very large Jewish foundations, the federation system, and then individual investors and helping them think about how to align their investments with their values and creating programming for people who didn't know anything about impact investing and you know, answering these questions that you were asking earlier about, well, do I have to sacrifice financial returns? And what does this actually look like? And you know, this was a few years ago. Today, you say ESG to people. People have heard of it. At least some people have heard of it. Five years ago, no one knew what that was. So mm -hmm. it was an interesting time for the industry. It was an interesting step for me. I got to run my own small organization, and I got to meet a lot of very cool people. 
And two years in, I decided it was time to go to business school. So I uh, put in my application for Warden and started that program. And that was also a Rwanda connection in a few different ways. It was both the Penn professor that I met in Rwanda who told me about the school and it sounded amazing. And then when I came back from Rwanda, I went to a fundraiser that was raising money for preserving genocide memorials here in Rwanda. And I met a woman who became one of my closest friends here in New York, who is also did our program at Wharton. So a lot of, a lot of tie-ins there. But anyway, I went to Wharton and um, got that formal education that I always felt that I needed in order to move from being on the sidelines and not to minimize anyone who's in a field building role, but I knew I always wanted to be in the investing part of impact investing, not just writing research papers or educating. You know, I really wanted to be doing the actual work. And given that I didn't have the typical financial background in do my two years at Morgan Stanley or what have you, it just felt like both the formal training and the seal of approvals that I needed to move into a more investing type role. So we talk about transition a lot on this podcast, right? From the military to outside of the military, but yeah. it turns out a lot of people go to business school, which has a very transitionary theme to it, right? Yeah. You were already working in impact investing. You kind of, it seems like you knew what field you want to be in, but you wanted to take the next step, I guess, and in, in be that you know front office type of role within your own field. Right? Yeah. You know, listen, it was both, right? I was certainly in impact investing. I wanted to stay there. I wasn't looking to move. I wasn't looking to immediately move, change jobs when I started school, although I did wind up transitioning midway through the program to a new role. But I think it was transformational in the work that I was doing. And I went from being working for a nonprofit and creating an educational curriculum and creating programming to investing. That's a pretty big change. Yeah. And part of that is school. And part of that is my partner, David, at Vodia, where I am now, who took a chance on me, right? But it was certainly a transition in the work that I was doing and in the industry that I was in. I'm much more in the finance industry today than I was in my previous role, even though it was impact investing. And it's tough. And for people who don't know or live in you know New York City or another financial center, it's like you're young, you get an analyst job, you're at a bank, they coach you up on all your FINRA exams, right? You do a couple of years there, you get your stamp of approval, you move somewhere else or, you know, it's, it's incredibly experience based, but you were able to navigate your way through to something now that it seems like you really enjoy and, and you achieved your goal of, of doing what you do now. Yeah. Listen, I say this to people all the time. Uh, a lot of people I speak with want to do impact investing. And for people who don't come up from a traditional finance background, I think the opportunity set is limited. It's hard because you're competing, just like you said, you're competing with a bunch of 24, 25 year olds who put in their two or three years. They're willing to work crazy hours, right? They've got a little bit of a financial cushion sometimes because they've been working at a high paying job so they can afford to take a lower paying job. And here you are coming from the nonprofit sector with the impact piece of impact investing and you want to do impact investing. That is a hard transition. And obviously there are pathways. I think you got to commit to a few things. One is often you need a name that will allow you to do that. For me, that name was Wharton. And two, you need a good, you need a good connection. 
And that connection can come from different places. For me, it was through the work that I was doing. And, you know, I met David, who is currently my business partner, through the work I was doing at Levan. So I had been building this network in the impact investing world for the past almost five years before I transitioned. And it was that work that enabled me ultimately to make the transition. So is the transition possible? Yes. It took me four or five years and a degree from Wharton to complete it. I didn't chime in at the time, but I love the part where you said, uh, I can't afford to go to this conference, so I'm going to call and ask if they need volunteers to work at it. I mean, that is just like a guerrilla tactic, man. That's awesome. We do what we got to do, right? Uh, my grandmother bought me a suit for that, by the way. I didn't own any suits. Israel's a very informal dressing culture. You wouldn't, you wouldn't need a suit even for your wedding, maybe a jacket. But before I went to that conference, my grandmother was like, all right, buying you a suit so you can actually look like a human being. I want to hear a little about, you know, we hear about these opportunities and these transitions. It's really easy to forget the hard work that went into that. And, and just from hearing you speak, I've heard about 50-some informational interviews where you were to the point of being burnt out. You did that volunteer. At all of these steps, like, were there any tricks to keep yourself motivated? I think, one, New York keeps you motivated. Uh, and I'll say that for the city. One, because financially you can't afford to not be motivated. And two, because it's so easy to surround yourself with people who are highly motivated. So I think living in New York certainly helped. Um, and I think part of it, you know, not to overanalyze myself, but I think part of it comes down to the things we were talking about earlier. And that is your set of experiences defines for you what obstacles you can overcome and which you cannot. And this was what I wanted to do. And it seemed an achievable goal. And it's not like every step of the way is that difficult, right? I mean, there are times where you're really sort of down in the dumps and it's hard to see the way out. But there were parts of this process that were very enjoyable and meaningful in other ways, even if they weren't exactly where I was looking to go. And that motivation, I mean, in a way that ties all the way back to where we were talking about your experience in the Israeli army and working with this not all volunteer group. So how would you motivate your team? It all comes down to relationships. Your soldiers are going to listen to you. And, and it's not hard to get them to listen to you when someone's shooting, by the way. That's the easier part. It's when they have to get up out of their sleeping bag at 5 a.m. to go on a patrol, even though they know there's nothing out there and it's because someone put down the order. And they're going to do it because you're like, I need you to do this for me. And they'll do it for you because of that. Uh, you know, I don't know how to compare difficulty in life. I think that's a very hard thing to do, right? But I think the opportunity set of what's possible certainly changes based on experiences you've had. I think even physical experiences that you have in the Army redefine for you what it means to be hungry or cold or tired. All these things, I think, affect how you ultimately see challenges in life. And I think I've been fortunate, if that's the right word, to have experiences that have taught me that I can overcome more than I might expect. Yeah, I have a uh, just something trivial and personal and something that's happened over the weekend where something I thought was going to take five hours, just all of a sudden, now it's going to take 10 hours. Yeah. And I just thought of some day in Iraq where something was going to take two hours and now it's going to take 18 hours. And yeah. like, that's just the way it goes. And as soon as I thought about that, it totally did not phase me to do this thing whatsoever. And I'm grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, I come back to my military service pretty regularly 
Ben, you know, you, you, you've seen me in those situations, right? But when you're out mountaineering, you got to get out of your tent and it's cold. Uh, how many times do you get out of a cold sleeping bag in the army? You can't even count the times you get out of a cold sleeping bag in the army. At midnight or midnight would be the best, right? Like 4 a.m. to do your guard duty. Well, what's getting out of a sleeping bag at 4 a.m.? That's, that's, that's what we wake up for. So I do think it redefines what is difficult and what challenges you can overcome. Since we're talking about this, who do you think you are today if you never had the opportunity to serve? You know, I, I can't even answer that. My military service is so monumental to who I am. I can't understate that, both in the things that I did and in the friends that I lost. And I think I can't imagine who I am without that. Can you imagine who you are without your military service? loser uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah i would like to think maybe professional baseball player i mean right. retired professional baseball player by now but still right. you know right exactly um yeah i know i mean it's, it's tough for me but we ask everyone who comes on the show we want to figure out maybe that's the one thing that i want to figure out oh there was one more thing i want to ask you we called the show Thank You, Now What, right? So it's like yeah. in in the U.S., everyone says thank you for your service, and it's kind of like a passing remark. Um, right. No one really, like, digs in that much. Yeah. I guess the purpose of this show is to kind of dig in or explore interesting people through the vehicle of life and career transition, that kind of thing. Do you guys do the same thing over there? That people yeah. say, you know, hey, thank you for your service, or, or like the older generation, t you know, sees younger generation and makes them feel appreciated, like deliberately. You know, I think, and and I and I'll say that uh, I'm honored to be the first non-U.S. military guest on your show. So thank you for having me. Sure. I think Israel is a little mixed in that regard. On the one hand, the dangers that Israel faces feel so much more immediate. In other words, our enemies are right behind, you know, right on the other side of the border. So things feel a lot closer and wars feel existential in a way that they don't really in the U.S. Right. Um, I think the flip side is, one, everybody does it. So that sort of makes it less something that people should be grateful for. And there's a pretty sad process happening in Israeli society where I think people who do wind up serving and who do specifically wind up serving in combat units feel like they're sort of the suckers, that they're the ones who couldn't get out of it, who other people found ways of either not going to the army altogether, or if they do go to the army to have cushy jobs where they sleep at home and, you know, work in intelligence in downtown Tel Aviv. And those who choose or can't find another way to not do that are sort of carrying the burden. There have certainly been moments, and I remember this very vividly after Second Lebanon War, where people are very grateful and there's a lot of appreciation. The flip side is, I think the army makes it very hard to enjoy that appreciation for a long time. I can tell you that I had a pretty rough time exiting the army because I learned, and I'm sure you've come across this, that they weren't going to take responsibility for some of my medical treatment post-army. And that was a pretty jarring experience. Hmm. I've had a great experience with that over here, but I know that our system has gone through, we, it's got a lot of press over the last 20 years and it's got a lot of attention. So, As it should. 
you know, and yeah. I think Israel, um, the pendulum in Israel is always swinging. And I think I happened to catch that pendulum where it wasn't in a good place. And the military at large was not in a good place, you know, and, and in many ways that reflected in its performance in the Second Lebanon War. I think it's probably in a much better place today. In fact, I can tell you that immediately after that, it went through a lot of changes, but I happened to catch it in a, in a pretty unfortunate place. The flip side is, you know, I wouldn't substitute my experiences. Like you were saying earlier, I feel very grateful that I had the opportunity to participate in the Second Lebanon War, despite the heavy toll, because when else do you have the opportunity to both test yourself and command and just experience those types of just monumental events? Yeah. Heavy stuff, man. Uh, you want me to talk about my job a little? I can do that. What, your job now? Yeah. Yeah. We didn't really get into specifics, but I actually don't even know that much about it. Yeah, I'll say a few words about it, because I think I think some of it's pretty interesting. Obviously, I think it's interesting, right? Yeah. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Uh, my, my job today has two parts. One is I work with investors, mainly high net worth individuals who are looking to invest their money and mostly to guarantee their financial future. And so these are investors who need this money to retire. Mm. But also a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them are looking to make sure that it's invested in a way that is aligned with their values. And that's a constant tension that we have to manage. We don't get to decide what their values are. And we certainly don't get to decide to take financial risks because we think something is right. So we look for opportunities where we think you can make investments that will generate market rate, or sometimes even higher than market rate, by looking in areas where others are not. I'll give you one example. We put a lot of clients into a fund that is working in the water utility space. So they're buying up water utilities that are non-EPA compliant, and they're fixing them up. It's, it's actually a pretty typical private equity style roll-up, but in the water play, and by a company who cares a lot about who their clients are, and are they getting clean water, and are they getting clean water they can afford. We think that the risk on something like this is actually relatively low for a PE play because water's not going out of style anytime soon. Meanwhile, we're getting private equity-style returns, or at least we're targeting private equity-style returns. So I think that's a nice case where there is no tension between social impact and financial returns. And part of the reason there's no tension is because water's regulated. So it's not like they can jack up prices, even if they wanted to. They don't, but but it's nice to have that security net. The second part of my job is my partner, David, and I together run a venture fund where we invest in early stage companies that are working in three main areas, food and water security. So thinking about how we're going to feed and get clean water, mainly to the developing world. So that's one bucket. The second bucket is aging and access to healthcare. So safe aging, thinking a lot about how the baby boomers are going to age at home safely and connected and in a way that it achieves what they want to achieve. And a lot of that for baby boomers, that means aging in place. And then the last area is circular economy and resource efficiency. So it's a nice balance. I get to work with clients and in a business that is fairly stable on the one hand. And then on the other hand, I get to do this early stage investing, which is very volatile in some ways, but very fulfilling. I get to work with companies. Do you invest globally? Yeah, we invest globally on both sides of business, really. So on the private client side, 
We invest globally. Most of our PE firms are US-based, although even that's not entirely true anymore. We have one based in Geneva, and a lot of the venture companies we work with are global. So in Norway and Israel, and wherever the returns take us, the returns and the impact. Yeah. So you have to do some pretty diverse diligence studies, don't you? Yeah. And that's one of my favorite parts of the job is I get to learn a lot about different sectors. So if you're going to make an investment in clean water, that's very different from an investment in safe aging. And we rely on experts. You know, we bring in a lot from David, my business partner's network at MIT, and Mm -hmm. even from my work at Wharton, we'll call in people to advise on specific companies and specific sectors. But one of the things that I love about my job is that I just get to learn about a lot of these different areas and sit down and learn about brain science one day and water filters the next day. And it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Avi enabling good in the world through capital markets. Please support our beloved nonprofits. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.